Welcome to Theatrically Speaking, the very first playwriting podcast. My name is Jonah Knight. Season one is republishing the long-lost first episodes of the show from back in 2007. And season two begins the new episodes. Now, a few things have changed since 2007, like the website. For more information about Theatrically Speaking or my other podcasts, please visit actualstorypodcasting.com. Next, back in 2007, you could number your episodes however you like, and I did this very creative numbering system that included episodes 4.1, 4.15, 4.2, and no actual episode 4. The numbering that the episodes have in your feed is the order that you should listen to them. So, welcome in to the Theatrically Speaking Wayback Machine. It's time to talk some plays. I hate movies, I don't watch TV, I can't read books, and I don't take kids to the zoo. Video games are gonna rot your brain, and all these internets are for idiots. But I love you, baby, dear, but you ain't no Shakespeare. Try to make me to be high class, and I would David Bammon on your ass. Welcome to Theatrically Speaking, episode 10.1. My name is Jonah Knight. I am your host of this Almost a Playwriting podcast released on Almost a Schedule. I'd like to thank all of you for leaving this in your podcast aggregator. Um, as uh, as the routine in this house settles down around Milo, uh, then uh, hopefully I will get back to a more regular schedule. But uh, I do want to thank you guys for hanging on there, and I'm going to try to do these as regularly as I can, and um, and hopefully with a with with a with a more predictable release schedule, uh, as as sleep happens at also more of a predictable schedule around here. All right, uh, I do want to absolutely thank Tom Hayes for um, doing the last episode, eleven point one, or eleven point eleven point one. Uh, thanks, Tom. That was very cool. Uh, if uh, And this is a, also a reminder for everybody that if you have a particular issue that you want to talk about, a, a something that you want to get off your chest, then let me know and we can totally arrange an opportunity for you to do your very own Theatrically Speaking episode sometime in the future. It'll be fun. Yeah, fun. Hopefully. Hopefully fun. Okay, cool. Okay, so here's what we got today. I'm doing something a little bit different. Uh, I'm going to divide the show into three sections today, and uh, because uh, because it seems to want to be in a three section show, uh, part one is an email. Got an email from a listener from Cameron uh, uh, Cameron Conrad that uh, that I want to read and dedicate a little bit of time to answer because it is a subject that I think um, warrants a little bit of time to go into something something good to think about and talk about here in a minute. Uh, section two is going to be what I told you about last time, uh, politics, uh, and about uh, writing politically in your show, in your play. And three is kind of, I don't know, I'm sticking this at the end because if you don't want to listen to it, you don't have to listen to it. Uh, these are two things that are are kind of related to theater, but not necessarily very much about playwriting. Uh, I'm going to talk about how sleep has, a f- or the lack of sleep has affected my writing and my creativity. Uh, and this is going to be a short segment. Uh, coupled with... Uh, language and I'm gonna and and specifically if you've been paying attention 
to uh, to the situation that Dog the Bounty Hunter has found himself in. I'm going to uh, do that just a little bit at the end of the show here. Um, but to start off with, uh, how you doing? Uh, so, so I, uh, last time I forgot to tell you that uh, so far... You know that we've got some Google AdWords, uh, uh, that campaign going out there. To date, I've checked this morning, 474,257 impressions, which means that uh, the ad has shown up that many times, 474,000 times. Of the 474,000 times that that ad has been shown for this show, uh, 105 people clicked through. That's kind of cool, resulting in a total of $16.76 spent in total on the Google AdWord campaign for Theatrically Speaking. That's cool. If you're one of those 105 people who found the show by clicking through, thanks very much. Thanks very much. Uh, I hope that you like it. I hope that you hang out for a while. Um, And a reminder before we really get into it that, um, you know, I don't have anything that I'm trying to sell you. I'm doing this show because it's kind of fun for me to do. Um, I've uh, had some really cool conversations with a number of you guys out there. Um, but I'm trying to now convince you to go to my website, jonahofthesea.com, and take the podcasting quiz. As I, uh, not quiz survey, because uh, there is an opportunity, as I mentioned before, that uh, some random company out there somewhere may want to place an ad somewhere in this show. And this totally intrigues me. Because I, I'm curious as to whether this is sort of like a random company that's like, get the name out everywhere. Or if it's some company sitting out there saying, you know what we really need to do is advertise on a podcast about playwriting. And if that is the case, I totally want to know what that product is. I want to know who that company is that thinks that this is the show that they need to advertise on to sell whatever they're trying to sell. And I think that that should motivate you to also find out what that product is, to go to the website and take the survey, and hopefully in the future, somebody will, um, you know, put an ad on the show. That'll be kind of interesting. Um, So $16.76 for the Google AdWords. My monthly Libsyn bill, who who, um, provides the bandwidth for this podcast to go out, is five bucks a month. And I think the website hosting, uh, coupled with like the blog is is less than 10 so i'm not spending a whole lot of money on this so i'm not thinking that the ads are gonna you know uh, i i certainly i have no idea maybe it'll be hugely successful and um and i will more than break even from what i am spending um but it's not such a huge chunk that it's putting me out so i'm just more curiosity aren't you curious aren't you curious which company actually wants to advertise on this show i think you are join of the Take the survey. Let's all find out together. That'd be fun. All right. Um, MySpace and Facebook. Check me out there. Yeah. I've gotten a, a handful of people have gone there to sign up as friends. Friends. That's cool. All right. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So let's do the email first then. All right. Uh, Conrad. Hi, Jonah. Been listening to your podcast since the beginning, and I think you're doing an awesome job. You rock. I just saw that you've uploaded a new episode on reviews and critiques. Can't wait to listen to it. My question, what's the process in doing research for a play? I'm writing a play that takes place in the 1930s on a farming community in California, and it feels like I'm getting stuck between spending time writing my story and doing research to make sure that it's as accurate as possible. Also, do you have any tips or personal experiences on research for a play in terms of interviews, internet library, from other plays, movies, TV shows, because of all this research, I'm starting to think of putting a bibliography in MLA format uh, in the program if this play ever gets produced. Ugh. 
Anyways, I'll leave it at that and listen to your latest show. Hope the family's well and keep the episodes coming. They are so appreciated by this aspiring playwright on the left coast. Best, Conrad. All right. Hey, thanks very much for writing Conrad. And if anybody else is interested in writing Jonah uh, at jonahofthesea.com. Cool. Okay. Um, a couple of things. Research, I think, I think that there are a couple of things to note. Um, the first is to remember, and this is, it's a very weird balancing beam act, um, because no matter how much research you do, as I talked about in that, uh, reviews and critiques episode, no matter how much, even if you're writing something about science and you have somebody who is a scientist from the National Institutes for Research in your play, who knows the subject matter that you're talking about and some jack off in the audience thinks that they know more. Um, then they're going to they're gonna know more. So you can't... The first thing to, to, to recognize is that you can't please everybody. And no matter how much research you do, there's going to be somebody out there who thinks that you're totally wrong because they read something once that contradicts that even though they have no idea what they're talking about. Okay. That aside, where do you start? I think that there are two basic things, or I should say categories, um, reasons why you would want to do research. One is because there are specific facts that you're looking for. Uh, and my story about this is actually, uh, with my play Take Stock, uh, the way that I was crafting the story, it became kind of important, or, or a fact that if I, if, uh, if I had this information, I would definitely use it in the story, whether or not police issue handguns eject shell casings, or whether they don't, you know, whether or not it does. So, because all that I really know is what I've seen on TV and movies, and I have no idea. Um, so, uh, so what I did was, I actually, there is someone in the family who is in law enforcement. And he and I have never really had much, uh, much opportunity to talk, to talk about this kind of thing. But I went out of my way and sat down with him and, and asked about this. And so, my first thing would be, if you know anybody who knows anything about what you're what you're what you're looking for any of the information that you're looking to find the first thing to do would be to talk to to living actual people um because that way if there are sort of gaps in the initial statement you can fill them in you can go back and forth with that and the interesting thing that came out of that was and i didn't use this in the play but apparently what what i've learned is that the certainly the different all the different states are not on the same plan there is not a national policy on which handguns police departments should carry. And because of that, handgun manufacturers lobby the different departments, be they county, state, city, um, to switch whatever handguns they're currently issuing and buy the new handguns that are being manufactured by the, by the handgun people. This is very interesting. So, so I was able to confirm that, in, in fact, in the St. Louis Police Department, the guns that they have do eject shell casings, um, but not all of them do. So that's kind of interesting. You end up with this stuff. I didn't use it in the play, but that is something filed away somewhere that I may use in the future. So whenever possible, talk to somebody about that. Um, the other reason you might do some research is because not that you're necessarily looking to find out a specific fact, but because if you're writing something set in the 1930s, you weren't alive in the 1930s, you might want some atmosphere. You might want some some language or some setting to help set the mood, to, to help really lift the show up so it doesn't feel like it's, uh, 
you know how, how you see these plays, you read these books, you see these movies that are just kind of like they're, you, you can only, you, the only reason you know they're set there is because of the descriptions of the clothing or, you know, they, they say it's the 30s. They act like it's the 30s, so it is, but there's nothing that goes on in the culture to indicate that. Um, so basically, it, it sort of depends. If you are around a library, I would absolutely recommend that you go to a library to do research because... Most libraries, not all of them, but most libraries have people that work there that live for this kind of stuff. And if you go in and you find the reference people and you say, hey, can you, can you suggest to me some books about the 1930s that I may be able to find out information about agriculture or about the economy or whatever, they know that. Those people know that, and they're sitting there, and they're waiting for you to come in so that they can fill you up with books. Then they'll pull a whole bunch off the shelf and sit you down and won't let you leave till you've read them all. Here in Frederick, Maryland, we actually have a cool thing in the library here called the Maryland Room. Uh, the Maryland Room is cool because it actually has, uh, it has collected, I, I don't want to say every, but it seems to me darn near every book that is specifically about anything Maryland be it cities or, you know, just uh, city hall records, the, what, the, what the demographics were in Carroll County in 18-whatever, as well as, like, uh, sort of uh, niche books about the history of duck hunting in Maryland and that kind of thing. So if you're lucky enough to have sort of that section, go there. Because if you're looking for ambiance, you're probably not going in looking for something specific. And so there are a lot of sort of, like, Happy coincidences. You go in and you're like, oh, I didn't think about looking up agriculture, but here's a book about it. I'll flip through. Hey, look at what that person's wearing. And that triggers something else. Uh, whenever possible, uh, library. Uh, talk to real people, I think. Um, the other thing you can do if you're not near a library or if, you, if you've been kicked out of your local library for improper use of their internet, um, then you may want to, uh, and you have internet at home, this is going to sound kind of funny because everybody makes fun of Wikipedia, but you can... Here's what you do with Wikipedia. Here, here's the approach there. Um, if, if you're not interested in... If you're, if you're a little wary of it. The great thing about Wikipedia is that if it's a good page, if it's a well-fleshed-out page, at the bottom there are links to where the sources are. And so if you're going to go to Wikipedia, don't necessarily find... Uh, expect to find the end result of your research there but that will give you links to other places to go. Um, if you're looking specifically about a uh, farming community in California, um, go to local government websites. Go to the, um, uh, uh, the, the, what do you call them? The, the economic, uh, 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 those people, begins with a C. Chamber of Commerce. Go to them. Go to the city's website. Go to... Um, Start looking around in those sorts of areas and find out your information. Um, now, remember that almost every website out there, specifically the government ones, they have an agenda with their information. And even if it might be very slight, in which case, you know, like uh, uh, if it's the Chamber of Commerce website, they're going to focus on why the economy was a good thing or why it was a bad thing or something like that. So as long as you sort of keep in mind that everybody has an agenda and they want you to see things the way they want you to see them, um, then that's okay, because you can still get flavor, and you can still pull out facts as long as, as long as the substance does not maybe necessarily redirect the focus of your story. 
Um, and you want to make sure that wherever you're looking, you find your work cited. You, you find your references. You find your bibliography. Um, because if they can actually... Uh, you know, direct you to somewhere else, follow those links. You know, if you're in the library, go look up that author to see if, if there's something there. Um, basically, yeah, I asked my wife about this. Uh, Lisa does, um, does a lot of research at her job, so I asked her about this, and she gave me a couple of thoughts there. So those are, those are pretty cool. Whenever possible, library, people, uh, follow links on Wikipedia. Yeah, that's cool. Um, as far as putting a bibliography in a program or in a script or something, um, there's certainly, you know, that's fine if that's what you want to do. Uh, and I've, I've seen some of these things before. It's not super common, but I would, I would, um, question why you, th- uh, or not, not why, but who is, why, are you putting that bibliography in there to show them that you have done research or do you expect them to then look at your sources and then go do their own research. Why are you putting it there? Um, I've uh, I've done bits and pieces of this before with with not so soft. I I you know read up a little bit on split personalities and uh, um, and I don't know. I, and uh, from the scripts that come in, um, I just assume that people have done their research. You know, uh, as a as a as a producer, as the person that's gonna you know want to direct the play or want to act in the play or whatever, I assume that the writer knows what they're talking about. And generally, if they don't know what they're talking about, it's gonna show. Um, I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying what is what is your expectation for including that? And if you have, and the main thing here is if you have a reason, do it. If you know why you're doing it, then do it. If it's uh, and I'm not saying don't make a bibliography, just, you know, why are you giving it to this audience? And if you know the answer, then give it to them. Yeah. Um, because that will also influence how you are presenting it. Yeah. Uh, it's one thing to just to have like a regular bibliography, but it's a bibliography to encourage people to take action. You're going to, you're going to format it differently. You're going to present it differently. So like anything, why are you doing it this way? And then do it. Once you have a reason, go ahead and do it. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thanks, Conrad. Uh, anybody else have emails? Jonah at jonahofthesea.com, and I will address them similarly. Yeah? Okay. Okay. Um, next section, section two. Uh, politics, political stuff in plays, issues in plays, issue plays. Um, and I'm going to start off here by reading an email from Trey. Trey, if you don't remember... Um, is one of the hosts of Brass Ring Writing's uh, playwriting podcast. You can find them at BrassRingWriting.com. You can look up their podcast on iTunes or wherever you find your fine podcasts. Get a subscription. Check that stuff out. Okay. All right. Hey, Jonah. Again, congrats on Milo's birth. Just a note or two on your next show. Take it or leave it. As you probably know, Scott and I covered a similar topic on Brass Ring Writing... Uh, in our show number three, Make Plays Not War. I don't really have too much more to add to the subject, but I will say this. A playwright should never give away his stance. If you have a definite opinion about a subject, your audience will know which characters are right and which are wrong. Then it becomes an issue and not the characters. I feel like this increases the chances that an audience will zone out. I think you, are, I think you should always be ambivalent as to who is right this allows the audience to make the final decision. Hopefully, after the playwright has, 
has ha, is forced to re-examine what they believe about a subject, plays should be the struggle between two rights. Also, it's important to think about what subject you need to discuss. Is there anything you can bring to a subject that an audience doesn't already know? Or better yet, can the struggle be about something else completely and just happen to revolve around a topic or event? Probably nothing useful there, but what the hell. Glad to have you back. The nine-point series was fun and in good spirits. Stray. Thanks, Stray. Um, there's a lot useful here, and this covers this covers a lot of good stuff. If you if you guys are playwrights and you've not gone over to check out Brass Ring Writing, you should definitely do that. Um, they make they they talk about a lot of good stuff over there, and because it's sort of a roundtable format, two or three hosts, depending on who's available, um, they they kind of have a back and forth that I don't have here. This is a monologue. This is a monologue show. All right, so um, a couple of things, uh, and I I keep using. I don't know. I think many years ago when I was an undergraduate, I saw I saw a play that was very much about abortion. So I keep coming back to that. So even though uh, issue plays, political issues in a play are not always about abortion, for me, that is the association. So that's kind of the thing that I talk about that I associate with um, with issue plays. Trey, absolutely. You're right. Um I think that if you, the, 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 the worst choice you could make as a playwright is to say, is to be watching the news and see something that just pisses you off. And you're like, oh, I hate that. And I'm going to go write a play and I'm going to fix it. And I think that's just like, just don't do that. Don't do that. You know, take that experience and, and simmer on it. And, and if you want to, if you do want to change, if you want to change the world, you don't do it through theater. Like, go go do some volunteer work or something. Go run for office. Don't, you know, don't, you don't need to write a play about it. Um, what I would suggest, though, is if you have a big issue, if you, if you absolutely must write a play about abortion, then here's what I would suggest. Because, because what we, what we really do want to avoid is the preachiness aspect of it. People go to the theater. Uh, yeah, yeah, people go for escapism, but they also do, I think for the most part, do want to learn something. They want to be exposed to new ideas, but they want to have some kind of experience. And maybe it's fun. Maybe it's not fun. Maybe they leave totally depressed, but they want to have some kind of uh, affirmation. You know, they, they, want to, they want to have a good and memorable experience. And a play that, that is sort of single note that just deals with, with one issue where the playwright is trying to alter the audience's mind is not that experience that they're trying to have. Um, I, uh, I have some friends who work with a, uh, a, uh, a community group, uh, around DC, just outside and inside DC. And there was a split in this group a couple years ago, maybe just two years ago now. Um, and the deal was so so community theaters generally they they do they're doing it because they love it uh and oftentimes funding is hard and you can't find your rehearsal space and there's all kinds of issues that go into it right all right so somebody there was a there was a i'm gonna try to be kind of vague as I talk about this, but there was a a political event like a big rally thing, and this group was approached, I guess someone that was involved with the rally knew somebody in the theater group. And they approached the group and they said, we have this, this play that one of our activists wrote. And for the sake of this discussion, it was the great abortion play. It was the play about how everything, everything abortion was good <laughs> and everything possibly limiting abortion in any way was bad. And whatever you feel about it. So that was the play. 
And it was going to be performed in front of a group of people that totally agreed with the subject matter. And they went to this, this, um, this, uh, this, this, uh, community theater group that had never in its history done anything but classic plays. Never, they hadn't done anything contemporary at all. And they said, we have our, our nonprofit political organization has a budget and we're going to pay you, uh, what I was told they were going to pay them was a good amount of money. It was in, it was, it was like, it was well over a thousand dollars. And, and they said, you know, say, you know, you don't need huge production values. It needs to be portable. Do this great abortion play, bring it to the rally. We'll give you this money. And essentially the, or the, the community theater group was, was splintered because of this, because on the one hand, there are people that maybe agreed with the message of the play and said, you know what, whether I personally agree with, I personally agree with this. And I think this is a good way for me, us to make money. There are people involved that said, well, maybe I agree, maybe I don't, but we shouldn't be involved in politics. Uh, the group ended up doing the money, the, the, the play, getting the money and a number of people left and formed like a splinter group. So, so that's kind of uh, that kind of a play. I don't see. I I don't see value in that. Uh, I don't see if if you have a statement that you want to make. I don't think that this is the forum. Now that said, that does not mean that you shouldn't have uh, uh, that you shouldn't have a character that has some dilemma over a big political issue. Uh, however, I want to, I want to throw a theory of mine out at you guys and you can, you can take it or leave it here, but here's this thing. My theory is that most of these hot button issues that we have are, are things that let's, okay. So back to, uh, back to abortion, because I can never talk about anything except abortion. So you're in high school and probably, unless you have like crazy parents on the left or right that were bringing you to abortion rallies, uh, when you were a kid, you probably really began to personalize the issue of abortion sometime in high school, because probably sometime in high school, um, you, if the, if you had never had it affect your family before, you met somebody, there was like the girl in science class that everyone said had an abortion or, or something like that. And so when you're young and you experience an issue, you internalize it in a very specific way. And it, it, it becomes something that I believe the association remains attached to the part of you that is in the period of your life when you've when you've attached that issue. So if you, if you've come across abortion when you were in high school, then there is an aspect of your adolescence that stays with you through adulthood that is going to keep ownership of that issue. And and I'm not saying pro or con. You may, you may have had a, you know, whatever. So, uh, so you have ownership of this issue. And then as you get into college and you start writing plays, or you graduate and you start writing plays, you're, you sort of go back to that. And you sort of go back to that girl in science class that had the abortion. And it kind if, if you're not careful, these issues remain framed in your adolescence or framed in the time period when you gained that, that realization of the issue. So, let's say that you do have, so, so first, okay, so there's that. Second thing is that be very aware of why you are writing about this issue. Okay. I would, I would say that abortion is not a plot point. 
that if at any point you can use anything other than abortion or a hot button issue to tell your story, then you should. And the reason I say this is because look at really bad films and really bad TV shows, really bad plays. They need to show that the high school girl is troubled. And how do they do it? Well, she's pregnant. And that's how you know that a girl is troubled or that she's loose or that she's, you know, needs some straightening out. It has to do with sex. It has to do with pregnancy, right? And then she's going to have an abortion. And that's going to be very traumatic for her because it is a traumatic experience. But some of these issues are presented in such a way in, in, in our media, in our storytelling media today, that they have become the expected plot point. And I was doing this uh, after Elise and I, before Lisa and I were married, I was writing a play and, and, and I did this. And I was like, da, 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 this character, you know, blah, 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 because she's pregnant. And Lisa flipped out, not because she necessarily has, you know, big attachment to this, but she basically brought up this issue that like her perspective as a woman, uh, something that I maybe as a, as a male have not noticed is that is, is basically what I just said, that every time there is a troubled girl um, or, or she's, you know, bucking authority or her parents are bad, she's pregnant or she has an abortion. And I hadn't thought about that. And after she brought that point up and just sort of watching TV and looking at the movies, like, why are all these kids pregnant and having abortions? Um, it's the same thing. Um, it's lazy writing is what it is. It's lazy writing. Don't do that. Um, if you absolutely need to, if, if, you, if you really need to write this play. And so, so what I come back to is that if you really know what you're writing, if you really need to tell this story then go ahead and do it. And don't let anything that I say or anybody else says um, change your mind. If you have to do it, you have to do it. But let me challenge you this way. If you have to write the big political issue play, if you have a particular view about the war, and you have to write the war play, make, just like uh, one of my writing techniques that I've mentioned in a previous uh, show, is to take the main character and make the main character in my plays a woman because that makes me because if I write a male then they can't become passive but if I write a woman they become more active because there's just that little twist that makes them not me and helps me do the writing um take your main character the person that we're going to see this story through the eyes of and if you are pro-war then your main character is anti-war and not militant not crazy not a caricature but find every reason why they would believe in something that you do not and make their points for them. And of course, at the same time, um, this is not the war play, right? Just as, as Trey, as Trey mentioned in his, in his uh, email and, and as he and Scott talked about in their show, in, in the wrestling writing show, um, there's no, don't, you're not gaining anything by that. You're not changing anybody's mind in the audience. You're, you're hopefully triggering something in them. But if you can present the other side, then it's a little, it, it makes a little more sense. It's more challenging for you. Um, and it can make, it can definitely affect, I mean, it totally affects the way that you tell the story. Because what you do want to avoid is this, this, uh, this perception that you're preaching. You don't want to talk down to the audience. You don't want to say, this is the correct way to go. And I think Trey's point here 
um, is actually is is great uh, when he says that it's not a struggle between the person who's right and the person who's wrong, but it's a struggle between two people who are right. And I think that's that's dead on. I think that's absolutely right. Um, and that's really that's really it. I mean, it's like it's like Angels in America. You know, is it is Angels in America? a political play is it a play about aids is it a play about gays um it's a it's a good play and what one of the things that tony kushner never lost sight of was that even though angels in america is a political play in my opinion and that it is very much an aids play and a gay play and a mormon play it's a play it is theatrical to its core and he can get away with being preachy on some of these issues that he wants to be preachy on because the whole experience is conf- doesn't doesn't let the uh, confuses the audience confuses the audience in that they're not watching it thinking that this is a preachy play they're watching it thinking wow this is a great play and it's about this stuff and it's about these rich characters but it's not about this issue yeah all right yeah don't lose track of the fact that you're writing a, a story don't lose track of the fact that you, these are living three-dimensional characters and that you it has to be theatrical. Um, and I think that's, I think that's part of the, the issue there is that a lot of political plays are written by people who are not playwrights. Um, they're written by people that just want to get their message out there. And if that's what you're doing, then stop it. Stop it right now. Write some essays. Go get a blog. Go out and, uh, as I said, go join whatever uh, nonprofit political action committee you want to join. Go do that to satisfy your ethics and to satisfy your morality. Don't give me that in theater. Because in theater, I need a play. I need a story. I need something that is going to want me to come see somebody else's story. Yeah. Okay. So, end of that rant. 10.2 is going to go a little bit further with the political aspect of it. Um, what I sort of did today was I tried to talk you out of writing abortion plays. Um, but uh, what I'm going to do next time is I'm going to talk sort of bigger picture ramifications of how those plays have affected our industry. Um, and this is actually a big one. This is something that I've been talking about to people for years and years and years. And I'm finally going to try to uh, break it down and get into uh get into a coherent argument in the next episode which should be out sometime within the next seven months so you have that to look forward to as well all right um part three uh really quick sleep i've mentioned this before um uh and this is the part where uh if if, if you've not if you've got offended by the number of times that i've said abortion in the show you've probably already turned off the 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 this episode but if you're still here this is a, a little a little different um so what I had been doing sleep-wise uh, with Milo uh, has had been that Lisa would go to bed at 8. I would stay up with him until about 3 or so. She would wake up, I'd be asleep by 4, and then I'd get up around 10, 30, 11, something like that. Um, that was when he wasn't sleeping through the night. Here's something that I've learned. If you're writing a show, if, if you're writing about a baby, um, and you do not have babies in your life, here's an interesting little fact that you can put in a play. According to the doctor, according to baby doctor, um, the time in a baby's life when they begin sleeping through the night is not based on age. It is based on body weight. Somewhere between 12 and 15 pounds, baby 
uh, can begin sleeping through the night because their body has built up enough glucose to not need food every couple of hours. Last uh, baby doctor appointment, which was last week, um, baby was just under 12 pounds. Now baby is over 12 pounds. We, three days ago, we started going to bed uh, closer to the same time. So now he can actually sleep uh, for about a four to five hour stretch, wake up, have one bottle, go back to sleep for another two to four hour stretch. And that's great. So now, so I spent a lot of time awake in the middle of the night. And this is one of the reasons why the podcasts were all, uh, the release schedule was all jacked up there for a while was because I kind of thought, well, maybe I can record these in the middle of the night, but I couldn't because if I started talking, then he'd wake up. Um, and uh, in trying to go to work as well, just didn't have the time. So now that I'm up at a normal time, I can do this in the morning. I'm recording this in the morning. So great. Um, but being really tired and awake in the middle of the night, I did not want to write stories. I did not want to write plays. I began doing the blog stuff. Um, I was still feeling creative, still feeling like I wanted to write, but couldn't necessarily concentrate on the big picture story, which is why um, I was writing, I'm still writing the reviews over at televisionzombies.com. Um, and why I'm doing the political blog on JonahOfTheSea.com, click blog. Uh, if you are not paying attention to the political, the presidential race so far, but you kind of wish you were, and you haven't watched any of the debates, read my blog, because I review each debate, um, trying to ignore specific issues and more talking about the presidentiality of the candidates. So that's kind of fun. Um, so do that. That's the end of that segment. Sleep is changing, and that is why I think that I'm going to be able to do this uh, more regularly now. Second thing I wanted to talk about was language, specifically the Dog the Bounty Hunter thing. Um, so if you haven't heard, if you don't know anything about Dog the Bounty Hunter, um, this was actually the first show that I reviewed over on TelevisionZombies.com. I am a huge fan of the Dog the Bounty Hunter show. Um, th- it's, it's great, and I'm not going to talk about the show as much Um, We're just going to begin with the premise that this is an amazing show and that it is doing a lot of good for people and that Dog and his family um, do a substantial amount of good. They've been recognized by uh, a number of organizations as as having a huge positive impact on the community. Uh, It's a great and entertaining show and oftentimes touching, and I recommend it for everyone uh, of all ages. Well, maybe not all ages, but, but most ages. So, just a couple of days ago, last week, there was a, uh, there was released to the media a, a phone conversation that Dog had where he used the N-word. The N-word. Here is a word. There is a word in our language that has more magic and more power than almost any other word. This is a word that if the wrong person says it, their life crumbles before them. That, that if you are a white person, if you are Caucasian, if you are not African American, and you say this word, you are forced to decide, to, to have this internal conversation with yourself about whether or not you are racist. It is something that when the word comes up, the conversation ends. It is a word that, that, uh, that can totally destroy careers, that can destroy lives. 
it is something that in some areas of the country is probably by by just pure usage one of the most common words uh spoken and and still instills the most fear this is a this is very bizarre when you think about language sometimes that that we can have this n-word and if i actually said the n-word see i can say i can say that i'm talking about it but what if i actually say the word what if i say the word i'm ha- so i'm trying to talk about the language but i can't actually use the language it's totally bizarre i don't mind saying that the shit's fucked up <laughs> but am i going to say <laughs> you know so as playwrights what do we do about this language it's totally bizarre because as a writer we can use it we can i can write that word because i want to explore characters and i can say that this white character says this word and i can say it uh you know through their mouths but i can't say it through my mouth you know um it's it's totally a bizarre thing and and it's not that we don't understand why of course we understand why everybody who is like everybody who's like 30 something basically everybody that's under 40 can can look at the language and and see the history of it and see why you can't use this dog if you don't know is 50 something he's a he's an ex-con uh, one of the reasons why the show is so good is because here's a guy who grew up with nothing, who dropped out of school in the seventh grade, who spent no time with his family, was in a biker gang, was uh, did time for for murder, even though uh, he was not the one who committed it. He he did time for murder. He got out. He turned his life around. He built a strong family for the most part. Well, you know, not all of them, but uh, he he built a strong family unit. He's very loyal. He's doing his darndest to improve his community and to affect people's lives. He's been cited by all kinds of people as being a positive role model. Um, people call him a hero. There are kids that go as dog for Halloween. And, and he's from a different era, you know? It's like when you listen to your grandfather say something about those black people, you know? Or, you know, you look at your... Sometimes when, like, the younger kids kind of look at grandma and wonder... What do you mean you never had a job? That's ridiculous. How can you not have a job? Well, times change, you know, but there are relics of previous generations that are still around and they're still, they're still vibrant and living parts of our community. But as our standards have changed, as our, as our uh, definitions of what is acceptable and not is acceptable change, they can't always keep up. I can't always keep up. What is this text messaging thing? That bl- uh, what do you think it's do you think it's appropriate to spell like that seriously people do you that and I'm old I'm old because I'm 33 and I think that it's too I think that these kids today spelling the T E H that's just fucking stupid kids seriously okay but but what do we do with these people what do we do with our language language is an ever changing thing so in general when you look at the history of language there's a, there's this awesome book by Bill Bryson, um, that I, that I, I really recommend you pick up if I can remember the title of it, uh, Bill Bryson's The Native Tongue, Native Tongue, The Native Tongue, um, which is a history of the evolution of the English language, where he goes into how the English language came about, how it has evolved, 
how it split apart when, uh, you know, people were colonizing America and all this kind of thing. Great, great history of language. Language changes. Uh, the English language changes at a huge rate. Uh, it's so fast. There are, there are new words showing up all the time. Jiggy is in the dictionary. Mm, yeah, it is. You can look it up in new dictionaries. Jiggy is in there. So, so we've got these words that are hanging around. And every once in a while, these old people, <laughs> like Dog, or Michael Richards, or Imus, say these words. And they say them for entirely different reasons, right? I kind of think uh, that Michael Richards... Mm, that situation is different than Dog's situation. Yeah, is different than Imus's situation. Um, but these words are out there, and it doesn't help matters that the twenty, the teens, and the twenty-somethings, um, if they have it, they have a different grasp on the appro- appropriateness of language, as they should. But it just, it just goes to confuse the issue. If you're not aware of Dog, if you haven't watched Dog, A&E has pulled his show off the air. It's no longer on the air. They're deciding what the final resolution of this was. He didn't say it on the show. Didn't say it on the show. Um, It wasn't that they were filming and then they just edited out that scene. Um, It was that he said it in a private phone call. That private phone call was made public. Um, uh, I don't know. It wasn't that he was caught on YouTube. It wasn't that it was on his radio show. It was that it was a private phone call. I think it's really interesting. Uh, I think it's. I think that. Uh, I think this particular case is is a bunch of crap. And uh, but I think that there's no denying that we as writers have the ability to use these words because we can put them in people's mouths and then have the conversation. We can't say it ourselves. We can't say them in interviews, and we can't say them. You know. Uh, in front of in front of the public on a podcast, but we can put them in characters' mouths, and that is how we can have the conversation. Yeah, is that a political issue? That might be a political issue. This is my the N word play. Um, <laughs> anyway, into that that might have been a rant. I wonder if I'll do those from time to time. I may. Um, anyway, this has been episode ten point one of Theatrically Speaking. I'll be back uh, with ten point two at a later date. If you have emails, please. If you have a response to this, let me know. Um, Jonah at JonahOfTheSea dot com for emails. You can look at me on MySpace. You can look for me on Facebook. Uh, you can subscribe. You've probably already subscribed. You can tell your friends about it. You should look over at BrassWingWriting.com because they also have interesting conversations like this. You can read my stuff on JonahOfTheSea.com. Click blog. Uh, you can go over to Theatrically Speak... Uh, to, um, to Television Zombies and read some stuff over there. You can also listen to the Television Zombies podcast because that's pretty fun too. All right. Is that cool? I think that's cool. Thank you guys very much for listening. Thanks for hanging in there. We'll get back to some uh, regularity with the release schedule as soon as we can. In the meantime, see you later.
Stupid TV. Be more funny.